What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Stroud. I'm the CMO of W2O Group, the host of the What to Know podcast. I am at uh, South by Southwest Interactive in Austin at the Fairmont. And I have to say that I've had the pleasure of interviewing a lot of um, very important, smart, interesting guests, but this one may be uh, the, the best. Um, we have a gentleman named Chuck Lavelle. Chuck is many things. He's a co-founder. He's an author. He's a tree farmer. Uh, he may be best known for some of his music. And before I go too far into that, I'm going to say welcome, Chuck. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aaron. It's a great honor to be with you, my friend. Well, it's a great honor to have you. And you are speaking a little bit later today on a panel called Music as a CSR Platform. So I'm going to read this so I don't screw it up. But um, listing the number of bands that you've uh, done keyboard work and piano work with, um, guy named Eric Clapton, I'm not really sure I know who he is, Rolling Stone, somebody, John Mayer, Black Crows, George Harrison, Allman Brothers, Indigo Girls. This is really at the point where you start to think like, oh, this is where it drops off and you don't really know the rest of the people except you have Train, Montgomery Gentry, Gentry Leanne Womack, and many, many more. So um, tell me a little bit about how you got into music and then let's talk a little bit about how you have been able to have this amazing sort of journey with some of the most recognizable and innovative bands in the world. Well, to answer your second question first, I work cheap, Aaron. <laughs> that says it all right there. I'm sure it has nothing to do with talent. Oh, mate. No, um, I've been blessed with a remarkable career. I learned to play the piano for my mother. I was the baby of the family. Uh, she was not a professional or a teacher, but she played for family enjoyment. So oftentimes it was just she and I in the house. Uh, my dad out working, my older brother and sister in school long hours, longer hours than I was. And so when I was five, six years old, I'd tug on her skirt and ask her to play for me. And I was just fascinated. I just loved watching her hands go up and down that keyboard, loved listening to the melodies and the harmonies. Uh, as a form of babysitting, she would sometimes get me up on that stool and show me some very simple things, simple chords, simple melodies. And often leave me to my own resources and say, well, Chuck, you just take this thing, this information I've shown you, and you just make something up, just have a good time. And uh, that's how it started. And so, uh, you know, one of the things my mom did for me after I began to actually dissect the instrument and learn how to play it uh, somewhat properly uh, was that she would say, and of course you have to appreciate, I'm at a very young age, six, seven years old, but she would say thanks to me while I was sitting on the piano, behind the piano, and she would say, well, what do you think it would sound like if there was a big storm outside? And I'd rumble on the low end, you know, do some lightning strikes up high. What do you think it would sound like if you hit a home run? Or what, what do you think it might feel like musically if you had an argument with a friend? So music to me has always been that. It's, it's not just chords and, and notes. Uh, it's more emotions, feelings, colors, and trying to interpret uh, what any given song is trying to say. Well, I love that start. And it's funny that uh, a few of the musicians I've had the pleasure of interviewing have talked about their parents' role and sort of getting them started. I do want to ask a little bit about um, the Mother Nature Network, and we'll get back to the music in a minute because obviously that's a, a critical thread. But um, fast forward, you, you're a tree farmer. You've written four books. Uh, you've started this very cool thing, which I think a lot of people have heard of, called the Mother Nature Network. 
not that it's not related to music, but it feels like it's a little bit of a right turn. And you started with this guy, Joel Babbitt. So, and Joel will be joining the panel later today, but tell us how that came to be. And, you know, how has that sort of scratched a different itch for you? Well, the URL for Mother Nature Network is mnn.com for those that might want to go there that haven't gone there already. Um, I'll try to make this short, but Joel and I have been friends for many years. He called me up one day and said, I wish you'd come to my office. I got something I want to discuss with you, and I did. And he said, you know, and by the way, for Joel is this genius public relations advertising guru. I mean, he's, his creativity level is off the charts. He's just brilliant. And uh, so he was involved uh, as president of Gray International out of the Atlanta office uh, doing work for huge clients, Coca-Cola, Dell Computer, and so many others. And he said, you know, all of my clients uh, are making major changes in their behaviors, uh, not only towards the environment, but towards social responsibility, corporate responsibility. And they're interested in getting these messages out on the Internet. Now, you have to remember that this is back in 2008, 2009. The Internet was exploding, as it still is doing. But... Um, so he said, I have no problem knowing where to put the messages out on other media, but the Internet, I'm scouring the Internet. I can't really find a place that I feel comfortable, uh, you know, putting these messages out on behalf of my clients. What do you think, Chuck? And I said, well, I can tell you there was uh, grist.com. There was treehugger.com. Uh, there was a, a couple of other minor league sites, and, and they were well-intentioned, and they were okay. But, you know, I said, you know what, Joel, you're right. There's no iconic site on behalf of the environment. Uh, nothing like, say, for instance, what WebMD would be to health and wellness. And so he turned to me, and he said, well, what do you think? Is there an opportunity here? Do you think uh, we could build something? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I'll tell you this. I'll resign my position if you'll go in with me and work together to build this thing. He said, I believe I can get the funding to do it. I believe I can get the staff necessary. And what do you think? So I was somewhat shocked because, you know, here was a, a guy, a friend of mine, willing to resign a very uh, good position in order to sacrifice and, and do this. Well, we did it. We launched in uh, January of 2009. Uh, on a wing and a prayer. It took some time. We, you know, when we started, we were probably number 550 on the list of uh, visited websites w with an environmental bent. And uh, eventually we worked our way up, and now we are the most independent, uh, for profit, visited environmental website in the world. We get somewhere between five and seven million hits a month. Um, we bought Tree Hugger, as a matter of fact, some years back, so we have that property as well. Uh, we've started a new company called Narrative, the Narrative Content Group, which creates websites for other companies and, and manages and runs them. So it's been quite a journey for us. And uh, um, the goal, for, as far as MNN is concerned, Mother Nature Network, is to make sure that we have the best source for environmental news, education, and information. I love that story. And uh, it all makes sense now. I guess as a guy that has a few things going on in his life, tree farming and, you know, running a, uh, the, the most uh, visited site for nature, uh, for profit in the world. Uh, you do all these things. Where do you find time to write? Because you've written four books, um, as you had, we had talked about up front. So t talk a little bit about the books and how did you find the inspiration and the time to do them? Well, the first book uh, was 
some, oh gosh, 15 years ago or so, it was called Forever Green, The History and Hope of the American Forest. Because I wanted uh, to get a true picture of forestry out to the general public. There's so much misinformation and uh, misguided thinking about what forestry is, and I wanted to try to clarify that. So that was the first book. The second one was um, I realized the importance of getting these messages, the same messages, to a younger audience, to a children's audience. So we worked together uh, with a guy named Nicholas Cravada, who was a good writer, and his wife, Rebecca Blue, uh, who did the illustrations to put a tree out called the a tree put a, a book out Technically called a tree with <laughs> words on it right <laughs> let's try again chuck the book out called the tree farmer and so that book in in a children's format explains what a tree farmer does uh, looking after the land and you know sustainable forestry basically uh, the third project was a an autobiography uh, that i wrote some mm, almost 15 years ago now called between rock and a home place uh, because you know i am very dedicated to my family and our home and we live in the country and uh, we're very fortunate to have a, a nice piece of land that we work and then the most recent book was called Building, excuse me, Growing a Better America. And that deals with smart growth and how we can go forward and hopefully be kinder to the planet than we have been being. I thought it was going to be a story of Trump and how he's, you know, changing the environment. <laughs> we won't go into the politics there. Um, so the music thread. You're talking today with Joel, with Ray Cairns of uh, Bear and Lisa Pearson's moderating your panel. And the idea is music is a CSR platform. And I think... Ray is working with Luke Bryant uh, at Bear to do amazing things there. You mentioned the fact that Joel has worked with iconic brands. Coke is one of them, and I think he's going to talk a little bit about that story. You're the true musician in, in the group, and I think you've made some of the connections with the tree farming and the responsibility. But you know, talk a little bit about Sneak Peek. What are you going to talk about today? And you know, how do you see music as that great unifier and CSR platform? Well, you know, it was interesting because, uh, you know, I've been quite busy of late. I recently did a, a fun event that was a tribute to Charlie Daniels, an old friend. We did this in Nashville just a few days ago, so I was focusing on all that. And I didn't really have a chance to focus on this panel until we were on the plane yesterday. And I started thinking about it, and, uh, you know, the first thought I had was, well, let's go back. What was the first time to, that you, Chuck, that you remember uh, seeing musicians engage in social responsibility and environmental responsibility. And, of course, that goes back to the 60s when you had Bob Dylan, you had Joan Baez, you had Odetta, you had the Kingston Trio, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and all doing, mostly all folk artists that were singing protest songs or songs for equality and songs that had to do with social change. Uh, then I thought, you know, well, the first rock concert was, uh, of course, George Harrison, that put together the concert for Bangladesh, calling on his uh, fellow Beatle Ringo Starr. He called on Leon Russell, Eric Clapton, Billy Preston, and others, and they all came together and did this fabulous concert at Madison Square, 1971, uh, and raised quite a large sum for the Times uh, to give relief to the people in Bangladesh that really needed it. So that came to mind. And then I thought, well, going forward, you know, what was the first engagement on the environment you know, as opposed to just social change or civil rights? 
And, uh, you know, now you're getting into uh, live earth. And, and you know, I, th I think the songs about the environment didn't really come until the early 70s, maybe, and maybe some late 60s. But, you know, I started thinking about the songs related to that. Uh, my pal Bruce Hornsby has a great song called uh, Look Out Any Window. And uh, even looking at the Beatles, you had Mother Nature's Son. And Michael Jackson had several songs concerning environment and what. Whatnot. So all of these things came to mind, and then I started thinking about, well, the music industry, you know, what are record labels doing? And I actually went online and looked up what Universal's doing, what Warner Brothers is doing, EMI, some of the independent labels. And it's amazing to see that most all of the labels uh, have some engagement with the concept of sustainability and uh, social change, uh, equality. I uh, thought about the Grammys, and the Grammys, of course, uh, there was a recent misstep concerning uh, a comment made about women in music, and they need to, they need to get better at that. They need to clarify that, and, and they need to make some improvements in that regard. However, I will say that the Grammys sponsor a great program called Music Cares, uh, and that helps musicians that have fallen by the wayside or can't afford health care or need other relief and so there's a lot of concerts during the course of the year all over the country to help raise money for Music Cares, and it's a great organization. So, you know, after thinking about all these things, I thought, you know, and, <clears throat> and one of the things I'll mention is uh, music manufacturers, the manufacturers of musical instruments. Uh, you know, Martin, uh, Taylor Guitars, uh, Steinway, Yamaha, Bosendorfer, and, and others, uh, violin makers, cello makers, they all certainly have a concern for sustainability for the wood that they use to make these instruments. So all of that started connecting in my mind, and, and that's what I'll be talking about today. Well, it's, it's a great story, and uh, the good news is I won't be able to be down there because I am going to be doing some additional podcasts. However, we are live streaming, so I'm going to watch this live stream, and this is one that I am really excited to see. I do want to ask two music-related questions, and then we'll get more into the personal stuff. So the first one is, you have had a ridiculous opportunity to play with some very well-known, or I could say it the other way, there have been some ridiculous musicians who have had the opportunity to, to play with you. Uh, how do you choose? Because I'm guessing you probably have your pick of the litter when it comes to, I know you said jokingly that you know you play for cheap, but uh, how, do you, how do you pick who you, uh, who you do music with and who you don't? Well, you know, fortunately, the opportunities have come my way. I mean, um, the first big step I had was, uh, well, I, I have to credit uh, Dr. John. I played with uh, Mac Rebenach, Dr. John, back in 1971, and I learned so much from him. And at the time, he had a hit record, Right Place, Wrong Time. And uh, he, of course, is one of the greatest New Orleans piano player, players there is, and I learned so much from working with Mac. Uh, and then along came the opportunity to play on Greg Allman's first solo record, Laid Back. That led to getting a position in the Allman Brothers Band. Uh, the Allman Brothers Band led an opportunity to start a band called Sea Level. Um, you know, through another set of circumstances, the Rolling Stones called me. Stones led to Clapton, Clapton led, led to Harrison. And so it's really been a story of one thing leads to another. And these are incredible opportunities, of course. And, you know, how, how, why in the world would I turn down George Harrison you know, or any of those great artists? Uh, some years ago, John Mayer 
uh, called me and said, hey, man, I'm starting a new record. Would you be interested in joining in? Of course, I did. I did um, uh, two records with John. We were slated to do a tour, but as some of the fans will remember, he had a granuloma on his vocal cord, and that caused to cancel the tour, which was a huge disappointment to me, of course, because I would love to have toured with John. <clears throat> Since then, you know, there's been subsequent Rolling Stones tours that have kept me busy. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really a matter of the opportunities present themselves, and how can I say no? So I would love to ask you about your relationship with all of these folks. You gave a little context, but I think a lot of people, because of the intrigue around the Rolling Stones, um, so you've had a chance to hang out with, you know, Ron and Mick and uh, Keith. Uh, I think everyone sort of has probably their own personal perception of who they are and what they are. And I know they've changed dramatically today versus, you know, in the 60s or the 70s, where I'm sure there were some foreign substances involved. But talk a little bit about getting to know those guys. And for the folks listening in that would love to be a fly on the wall, I'm sure for, you know, some of those uh, plane rides or jam sessions or whatever, uh, give us a little context. Aaron, this podcast isn't that long. <laughs> no, we can make another 60 minutes if you want. We'll cut into your session. We'll just say sorry, get caught up. Uh, oh, my goodness. Where do I begin? Well, um, first of all, you know, I was a huge fan of the Rolling Stones growing up. My first band, The Misfits, played British Invasion heavily. Um, I first saw the Stones in uh, Birmingham, Alabama at Legion Field and was enamored with them. I saw them again at, at uh, Auburn University at a show. And uh, years and years go by, and you know, I've studied that music and learned that music and played, you know, in cover bands that have played those songs. And uh, the short of it is I get a call from Bill Graham's office at a point in time and saying, would you be interested to audition for the Rolling Stones and uh, you're like mm, let me check my schedule I have a few <laughs> other things but maybe I can squeeze it in and so uh, I did uh, and it went really well I did not get the gig immediately this is 1981 uh, they embarked on the uh, tour that behind the um, Tattoo You record and when it came time to go to Europe and tour in Europe the next year 1982 they called me and they said we want you come on so I did uh, listen, man, what can you say? You know, I mean, they're, they're all individuals, right? You know, Mick, Charlie, Keith, Ronnie, they're all very different from each other. Uh, they're all very English. Uh, it took me a couple of years to study Monty Python uh, humor to, to understand a lot of what was going on. Uh, but I l really enjoyed diving into that culture and getting to know that culture, getting to know them as individuals, getting to know them musically, uh, they've been very good to me. I've really enjoyed my role musically with the guys. Now I have the moniker of musical director. I, I work on the set list with the guys. It's just a tremendous joy, a lot of fun to do that. I'm a fan as well as being a part of this thing. So <clears throat> I think Mick understands that and gives me a, a little rope um, on the set list because, you know, sometimes we'll have arguments. You know, I don't think you can do that in a stadium. Well, yeah, you can. Memory Motel, sure. What are you kidding me? People will go crazy, you know. And we have a lot of back and forth about some of those issues. But um, sometimes I lose and I, I, I can't get the songs that I think uh, would be fun to put on the stage. But sometimes I win. Well, that's going to be a uh, one of the coolest positions to be in. So thank you for sharing that story. Uh, this is where we do shift into a little bit more about you and, you know, getting to know some of the personal stuff 
Um, first one to do whatever degree you're willing to share. What's one thing that people don't know about you that you are willing to, to share with our audience? <laughs> uh, I'm a dog trainer. How about that? Uh, Rose Lane and I have a commercial. That's my wife, Rose Lane. Uh, we've been married 45 years now. Well, congratulations. Thank I'm you. 22, I think. Uh, <laughs> it's been wonderful, but you're double plus me. So that's, uh, that's crazy to think. Uh, most of that time we've lived in the country. And uh, as part of that, we have a, com a component of our tree farming that we include as a, a commercial quail hunting operation. And I love training bird dogs. Uh, we just got a new puppy that I'm just enamored with. She's a, a German short hair pointer. Uh, lovely, lovely little dog that's uh, about five months old now and that uh, we have already begun training. And that's something I just really enjoy engaging in. Just in case you didn't have enough things to occupy your time. <laughs> uh, thank you. So the next one is I like to help build our listeners' libraries. And so talking to smart people that have some worldly experience, any book that you've read over the last year or two, it could be one of your books if you want, but uh, that you'd like to share with the audience and, and talk a little bit about that. Uh, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dewar. It's a fantastic uh, novel, uh, really powerful, powerful read. I had the chance to meet him and engage in an event at Bowdoin College up in Maine. Some, I'm from Maine, so I know. Well, there you go. Some months ago, they were kind enough to give me an honorary doctorate there. And uh, he was a uh, graduate of Bowdoin. So uh, I just think that's probably the most powerful book I've read in quite some time. Um, and uh, let's see, I think you posed the question uh, earlier about a desert island record. Yes, you're getting ahead of me, but this is the fun part, and especially when you have musicians who have played with amazing artists. Um, you're on a deserted island. You have an opportunity to take one album with you. I know some people joke that like no one even listens to albums anymore. I would disagree with that. I actually am starting to listen to more albums on vinyl as well. But uh, who, who would be your favorite? And by the way, you can pick one of the bands you played with, and why would you choose it? Well, of course, that's an impossible thing to, to answer. I mean, golly, you know, we think about all the great records through the eons of time. But uh, one of my favorite piano players, probably my favorite piano player, is uh, Keith um, Jarrett. Keith Jarrett is a genius. He was a child prodigy. He learned all the classical repertoire, and then he went into playing uh, standard jazz music. And then he did something very interesting. He started doing a series of solo records and solo performances where he would walk on stage and just completely improvise with, you know, blank your mind, put your hands on the keys, and start playing. And that's a fascinating risk in my mind to take. And uh, he's put out innumerable live solo improvised concerts one of the ones that stands out in my mind is many many years ago but in the city of cologne germany uh he did a concert that uh, he was just playing some brilliant otherworldly things so i'd probably have a keith jarrett record with me well it seems apropos and i have to say uh, I could do this interview for hours, as we joked about earlier, so I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm sure the listeners would agree. Uh, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, and the host of the What to Know podcast. I've just spent the last 20-plus minutes with Chuck Lavelle, who's a musician, a author, a businessman, husband, a tree farmer, dog trainer, probably many other things that we don't know about. So thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Aaron. A great pleasure. 
Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.